middle of a series in the book of Exodus. Uh, so it is our primary uh, commitment to just preaching through the Bible. And so uh, we are working through a, an Old Testament book, uh, the book of Exodus. So if you have a Bible, you're welcome to, to open that up or turn that on. Uh, we're in Exodus chapter 2 this morning. Uh, so if you are a visitor, you're catching us right at the front end of this. So uh, good timing on that. Um, before we look at today's passage, and, and by the way, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the words projected, so no need to, to sweat about that. Um, we, uh, I mentioned this last week, and I promise um, I, I probably hit the Star Wars quota already. I've, I've mentioned it a couple times, but um, we've been watching Star Wars in our home for the first time. Um, I know, gasp. For the first time, we're watching Star Wars. And uh, one of the things that, that myself and our young boys have had trouble doing um, is tracking the timeline of everything, of course, uh, between, within episodes, between episodes, getting the order right. I mean, it's, you've got to be like a borderline mathematician to figure out Star Wars. But that's why we have Ray. Where's Ray? Um, Ray tells me all the tips about Star Wars. Um, but uh, one of the things that has been highlighted as we've been watching these uh, over the past couple of weeks um, is obviously there's, there's large gaps of time between some of the episodes and, and characters change, actors change, and you know, Anakin Skywalker's young and then he's older. And, and so I'm, I'm really having to keep the boys up with, with some of the chronology and the timeline of Star Wars. And um, the same thing's true of Exodus. Um, the, this, these first two chapters, uh, by way of reminder, if you've been with us, you've heard this, um, is an extensive period of time, probably over 400 years. Um, and so uh, chapter 2, which we're going to look at today in its entirety, um, covers 40 years. Um, this, is, this is the birth story of Moses, the, the Old Testament, the premier prophet of the Old Testament, Moses, uh, up through about 40 years old of his life. And so there's a, there's a little gap in there uh, from basically three months old till he's 40. Um, but I just wanted to, to, before we read the text, to remind you that this... These are extended periods of time. Uh, the Israelites have now been in Egypt for generations. Uh, the, the current living generations from when this narrative was written, um, from, from when this narrative actually happened, maybe not, not written, but they only knew Egypt. Okay, so they were born in Egypt, enslaved in Egypt. It's all they knew. Let's look at Exodus chapter 2. Uh, reading uh, verses 1 down through 25. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen, bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. And then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. 
So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the gap chronologically. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? And he answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid, and he thought, Surely the thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him, that he might eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with, this, with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their growing, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray that he would bless the preaching of it. Father, we, we need to hear from you today. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would make the scriptures um, real and relevant to us. Um, we, we need your help to understand them. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would now fall fresh on all of our hearts gathered here today and that you would uh, make much of Jesus um, through this passage. We pray this in his name. Amen. One of the things uh, Heather and I have enjoyed to do, um, well, we've made it an entire date night. You know, you, you know those dates when you like, we know we need to go on a date, we have no money, what are we going to do? Um, one of those things that we've done in the past is um, we go to Barnes & Noble and we will read their magazines for free. Um, we'll purchase coffee, so it's like we've made an in-store purchase, but we'll, we'll hang out by the magazines. And um, if you've been to Barnes & Noble, you'll, you'll know they've got, they've got an extensive wall rack of magazines. I mean, everything under the sun is in that rack. And um, it dawned on me, um, preacher always looking for illustrations, um, it dawned on me that Barnes & Noble um, has really tapped in to our human nature um, in this way. That wall of magazines is a wall of salvation. It is a wall 
that offers life to people who are so desperately looking for it. And so the variety and forms of salvation offered are, are everything. Let's, let's remind ourselves, you know, there's, there's salvation for the hunter, uh, for the guns and ammo department. Uh, right next to that usually is the garden variety, so home and gardens and family circle, those types of things. Uh, there is salvation through fitness. There's always those fitness magazines that we all so desperately want to don the cover of one day. Um, there's salvation through food. There's salvation through family. There's salvation through card collections. You name it. Everything under the sun is on that rack. And, it, and it's, really, it's really just a peek into our hearts. How, we, how we're, all, we're all looking to find life somewhere. Um, I mean, think even, even beyond the magazine rack, kind of stretching it into our own real lives. I mean, we're, we, we look for life um, in all kinds of places. I mean, in, in career success, of course, um, in, in having families, good marriages, having children, two, two and a half children, uh, according to statistics. Um, we, we look for it in um, status, um, like status quo vehicles, those types of things, things that have told us we've arrived. We're, we're always, we are creatures who are always looking for salvation somewhere. Um, see, the Egypt, life in Egypt here for God's people um, is, it's different circumstantially than our lives, yes. Um, but they're just like us. Um, they are looking for life. They're looking for salvation um, in all the wrong places, just like you and I. Um, I mentioned it in the introduction to the text. Um, they've only known Egypt, right? They've only known enslavement. They've only known darkness. They've only known paganism largely for their entire lives. And they're screaming internally, show me life. And um, God gives them Moses, um, he, if, you, if you don't know anything about the Bible, maybe you're new to Christianity and the Bible, um, Moses is like, is, is, the, is the premier figure of the Old Testament. Um, he is, he is the, the central character in the first five books of the Bible. From here on out, he's going to be the deliverer of God's people. Um, but really, we have the privilege of hindsight and so we here many years later look back and we see Moses, is, it's, he's a prototype. Um, he's a prefigure. Uh, he's a shadow of something greater that was coming, a better and ultimate deliverer of God's people, namely Jesus. And so before we jump there, um, always, always want to make that connection. I want us to walk through this narrative, um, three things for Anyone tracking through notes? Three things we're going to look at. We're going to look at salvation. I think this text is, is a precursor to finding life in the middle of, of darkness in Egypt. And so um, three things about salvation. We're going to look at preparing for salvation. We're going to look at working for salvation. And then we're going to look at crying for salvation. So preparing, working, crying. Um, first 10 verses. Let's do a, a quick walkthrough of the birth story. Um, for, for those of you new moms out there, um, you know, all the rage these days is, is the birth story. Um, 
you've got nothing on Moses. So, uh, you know, like if, if Moses had a blog to record, uh, if his mom had a blog to record this, I mean, clearly she got the second book of the Bible, so that's pretty impressive. But, but what, we, what we see is, is Moses, he's writing about his birth story. Uh, it, it's almost like from a third-person omnipotent perspective. Obviously, he's a young child, so he was there, but he wasn't there uh, intellectually. But he speaks of these two general people. He says, a man from the house of Levi took a wife, a Levite woman. Now, later in Exodus, these people are named. Okay, So, so father is Amram, mother is um, Jochebed, uh, who was actually his aunt. Um, so God hadn't laid out those laws yet, so that was, that was kosher. Um, so the, Amram marries his aunt, older woman. Uh, he marries his aunt. They have children. Now, again, further down the road, we'll find out that Moses is not the firstborn. Uh, at this stage, he's got two other siblings, an older sister, Miriam, who shows up in this story, and then an older brother, Aaron, who's about three years older than, than Moses, what we know about from the scriptures. And um, if, you were, if you haven't been with us, you'll, you'll need to know this, that the Hebrews were under a banner and under an edict from the king that all of the baby boys were to be put to death. Uh, this was Pharaoh's way of suppressing the fertility of the Israelites. He was overwhelmed by their, their power and he was threatened by their numbers. And so Moses is born under this edict, and so he should have been put to death. But in chapter 1, we saw the midwives were sparing lives. They were not doing what the Pharaoh had asked them to do. And so Moses is a byproduct of that gracious work of the midwives to detest and defy the Pharaoh's edict and to fear and honor God more. And so we see he's born and he's hidden for three months. Children are hard to hide. Case in point, my beautiful daughter. Um, for three months, it's feasible, right? I mean, just think about the logistics of it. They've, they've got other children in the home, so they've got toddler Aaron running around at age three. Miriam's a little bit older, but you can, you can kind of, you put the bottle in their mouth. That was not planned at all. That was just pure providence. Um, but you could, have, you could imagine how for three months it was feasible for the parents to kind of hide Moses. But he gets older and um, the inevitable happens. They know that they have to get rid of Moses. She prepares this ark of salvation for this young child. She makes it as watertight as possible. And she puts it in the river. Uh, this would have been common um, in, for them. Uh, it would have been akin to um, someone dropping a child at the fire station doorsteps, a child that's unwanted. Um, that's what this culture did. And so Jochebed, the mother, entrusts her child to fate, really. Um, there's no reason for her to believe, I, I don't think, I mean, there is some discussion, some commentators talk about, like, was this all orchestrated? You know, like, had they timed this out? You know, they knew Pharaoh's daughter would be down by the river, and, you know, they knew that she would have, like, it's, it's a very complicated and complex way of thinking that they somehow strategized this. I mean, I read this text very plainly. They had committed this child to fate. And the sister, Miriam, watches Moses float down the Nile. Um, 
and he's rescued. Pharaoh's daughter is out bathing, whether it's for ritual cleansing or religious ceremony, we're not really sure, but she sees the child in the ark, he grabs her with pity, and she finds a nurse to nurse him, Moses' mother. Now that part is absolutely orchestrated. Um, Miriam goes down and says, I, I could find you a Hebrew who's you know, able to produce sustenance for this child, um, and she brings Moses back home. I, I, I think we kind of cursory kind of walk over that. Sometimes. Like, like she had just committed her son to death, and then he's back in her home. Uh, the narrative tells us that he was there until he was weaned. Uh, that was probably, in their case, two or three years. So he's back home for a couple few years. Um, God has rescued him, but again, they've got to commit him back because he's going back to Pharaoh's house. He's going back to be the daughter's son. So we see Pharaoh's daughter bring him in, adopt him as her own. He's now, for all intents and purposes, he's Egyptian. Um, here's, here's what I think, I think what the Lord um, wants us to see. I, th- I think he's showing us that salvation is meticulously planned and executed by God. Meticulously. To the detail. Um, Nothing is an afterthought for God. Like There is not a single detail of Moses. Yes, he's a premier prophet who had 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 a strong fate and destiny, but not a single thought or detail of your own life is not meticulously planned by God. Everything is. Um, I mean, think about, um, I I think, I think a lot of times when we, when we assess, even in our own lives, but, but in the Bible, like evil and suffering, like the, the big philosophical question of how can God do this to me, which is what the, what the Hebrews were asking while they're in Egypt, why me, why is this happening? The Christian, the believer says, God is using this, not just in spite of this, but that he has designed this very thing to be worked out for your salvation. Um, Moses' early life is being meticulously planned out and executed by God for his good and for his salvation. Um, so, so that's kind of the the beginning. That's kind of the, the preparation of, for salvation. Well, well, secondly, let's look at working for salvation. So I mentioned it in the reading, but let me remind you, between verse 10 and verse 11 is about a 40-year gap, okay? So we don't know much about G, um, uh, Moses' life up to that, but, but let's, let's speculate a little bit. Um, he's raised in Pharaoh's rule, okay? So he's, he's raised as the son of Pharaoh's daughter okay so he's the grandson of pharaoh the king of egypt Um, he's received a premier what we would call an ivy league education so he is egyptian educated Uh, he's a member of the egyptian royal family the royal court he's a high-ranking officer so he's got influence he's got clout he's got status Um, in fact if you picked it up if you noticed um they, uh, they, in, in, the, in the, the crime scene, we're going to move there in a second, 
they thought he was an Egyptian. So Moses essentially was like an Egyptian, culturally speaking. But he had not forgotten his roots. Um, he knew his history. Uh, he knew the, 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 the plight and the desperate condition of the Israelites whom he belonged to, um, at least ethnically. Um, and he goes out, verse 11, and he goes out, it's kind of a play on the word exodus, he goes out and he looks on his people and he sees their burden. Now, when you and I read that text on the surface, we say, okay, you know, Moses, here's this influential figure now in Egypt. He goes out and he says, oh, these poor people. You know, like, oh, they've got it rough, right? Um, but the word is, is so much more. Um, it, it's emotive, emotive, emotion-filled. Um, so Moses goes out and he's emotionally moved by the condition of God's people. Um, and uh, he, he murders a, a man. Um, I, I don't really want to get bogged down with this. Um, the motive was, was right, but the action was probably wrong. Um, in fact, what he did uh, to the Egyptian was the same thing the Egyptian was doing to the Hebrew. So the same word is, is used there. Verse 11, the Egyptian was beating a Hebrew well, Moses apparently was, was a little more powerful, but he did the same thing to the Egyptian with different consequences. Uh, he looks this way and that, probably, probably a, a sense of, of guilt and paranoia, right? Like, did anybody see what I did? He's discovered, and he flees. He flees to Midian. He flees eastward. Um, and God is still um, working these circumstances out as he goes to a well. Um, and in an attempt, what, what I think is an attempt uh, to become the Savior, um, you know, he, negatively, he first became the Savior of that Hebrew who was being beaten. Now, positively, he becomes the Savior of these women who are being ushered around by these shepherds at the well. So these seven daughters come to get water, and, and Moses kind of rides in, figuratively speaking, on his white horse, to rescue these women, uh, he does. He fills their troughs with water. The women go home. The father, the pr priest of Midian, the friend of God, that's what his name means, friend of God, now says, where's this man who helped you? Bring him home. They find Moses. He comes home and, um, and, you know, and he's, he's given a, a wife and then blessed with a son. Um, now, at first read, this was my take on it, was like, wow, Moses, it's pretty amazing. Like he's all, he, he hasn't been called by God to be any, he hasn't, you know, the irony of that question, who made you the prince and judge over me? Well, nobody. Moses is just an ordinary man at this point. Um, but, but under the surface of Moses looking like the hero, um, let me, um, I, think, I think he needs villainized for a moment. Um, because what Moses was doing was he was making a, a stab at delivering God's people with his own strength. That's, that's what Moses was doing uh, when he addressed the, the altercation with the Egyptian and the Hebrew. He was taking matters into his own hands, right? Uh, same thing with the women. 
Uh, not saying he shouldn't have done it, not saying he shouldn't have done that, but what he was doing was he was trying to make things happen through his own grit and strength and power. And here, here is where salvation begins um, to really unravel because that is who we are. Here, here's, what, here's what we learn through Moses negatively. Um, it's that salvation never comes through our own strength, but it always comes through God's power. Always. And so though, though God has given us this narrative, what he's, what he's unfolding is, is that, that Moses is not going to be able to deliver his people out of their condition without God's help. And so what, what God is beginning to show Moses and what he's showing us is that he doesn't want us to be the Savior he wants us to be the instruments in the hands of the Savior. So he is going to use Moses in very powerful ways, but before he calls him to that work, I think he's showing him that salvation would come another way. That salvation would come not through bare-knuckled, kind of buckling down, do more, try harder, but that it would come by grace. Um, see, you and I, we, we will do everything um, in our power to work for salvation. I mean, you think about it, kind of using those two instances of, of um, Moses as the framework. You think about it negatively. Like, we, people, will murder people, maybe not physically, but certainly in our hearts to bring about salvation. Um, we, uh, we will utterly destroy and condemn people with our own self-righteous judgment. Why? Because it makes us feel better. We, we, will, we will slay people and slice and dice people with our words, particularly behind their backs as gossipers, right? Like the backbiting ways. Why? It makes us feel like we have life in those things. Um, positively, thinking about the, the activity at the well, like, like Moses was being good. He was doing the right thing. Um, we do this. We make ourselves look good so others will see it. I mean, we are making ourselves the Savior. Uh, we we, 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 we we put on ourselves kind of the title of Redeemer. Look at me. We spotlight our righteousness. Uh, we, we, we fixate on, on really fixing everybody else, right? We kind of elaborate these, these blueprints for how I'll fix your life because I know how, you're, how you should fix your life. Um, we, we make ourselves the judge and the arbiter of all morality, like we are the we are the high water mark of how people ought to live. Like if you're not doing this, then you're not good enough. And so we we begin to spin everything in our lives, and we are subtle at it. I'm I'm kind of making these remarkable claims, but we are oh so subtle at making ourselves look so good because we want to be the savior. So God begins to teach Moses, and I think he's, I know he's teaching me. 
that he will get the glory for salvation and not us. And when we get that, only when we get that will he use us as instruments for salvation in the lives of others. So, if working is not the way to salvation, which is what I'm saying. Second point is working for salvation. Let me be very clear. If you've heard nothing I've said today, listen now. Working is not the way to salvation. Then what is? Let's look thirdly at crying for salvation. Um, I love that my boys love sports. We get to go to a lot of sporting events. Um, Graciously, my father-in-law, who's not here to brag on today, has lots of tickets to lots of events. Um, And so we we go to Lobo games. uh, We go to... Dallas Cowboy games when we're forced to do that. Um, we, we've we've just we've been we've been privileged to go to a lot of different sporting events. And uh, one of the one of the um, things we have grown to love about the sporting events is kind of in the intermission time. Uh, you know they'll do different games and those kinds of things. One of our favorites right now, at least, is the kiss cam. You guys know about the kiss cam. So the kiss cam is where they will, uh, the camera guys will survey the crowd and they will find innocent bystanders sitting next to each other who look like they want to kiss. Um, oftentimes, you know, the, the cute older couples who are obviously married, it's, you know, that's a cute thing. Uh, younger people, sometimes I wonder, like, are you on your first date and you just got forced to kiss for the first time? Or, you know, like, there, there's those scenarios. And then there's the scenario where it's two strangers who happen to just be sitting next to each other. They're like, no, we're not kissing. Um, but but what, we've lo- what, I, what I've grown to love about the kiss cam is just the unexpected nature of it. Right? You don't know who they're going to pick. They, they don't tell these people, hey, you know, next intermission, we're going to frame in on you and you guys are going to kiss. Like, it's the utterly most unsuspected moment of affection uh, for these people. Verses 23 to 25 are the kiss cam of this text. Um, Completely and utterly unexpected. Uh, Carrying the, the metaphor, this is God kissing his people when they would least expect it. Um, again, I sound like I'm beating a dead horse, but these Egyptians have been in darkness their entire lives. They've never experienced really the direct and active kindness of a merciful God. I mean, the way the first two chapters have read, God, let's admit it, he's been rather passive. Um, he's spoken of a couple times in the midwife situation he's been mentioned, but by and large, God has been absent from this narrative. And so if you're an Israelite and you know your religious history, you're asking yourself, where is this God of love and mercy that has committed himself to me? And he shows up in verse 23 through 25, and he reveals himself with four beautiful, glorious verbs. It says that God heard, he remembered, he saw, And he knew. So let me just quickly walk through those. God heard. What did he hear? Well, he heard the groaning of his people. He heard them groaning under the crushing weight and burden of enslavement that they could not get out of. He heard 
of their helpless scenario. And when, and when I say that, humanly speaking, that sounds ridiculous because this is not just them, hey God, do you know about us down here? Like, this is not just them relaying some lack of information that God has. He's fully aware of their entire scenario, but it says now he is actively hearing with intention of moving. The second thing he does is he remembered. What did he remember? Well, he remembered the covenant. The covenant that he made with the forefathers, the promise, the commitment that was sealed with his own blood. Genesis chapter 15, we've been talking about that. What did he see? He saw people who could not help themselves. He saw people who were bound, enslaved, weak, and powerless. And he knew. Again, not just, not just a deliverance of information. It's not a data transfer. Oh God, okay, God knows now that he has to do something. The word used in the scriptures for, that's used here is the word of intimacy. It's the word used of physical intimacy. It's the word of deep personal relation. God knew. You might be here today, um, and you might say, you know, how could, how could a God like this love someone like me? Um, how, could, how could he kiss, carrying on my metaphor, how could he kiss somebody like me? Um, and that's the very place that God wants his people to be. To the point where they've come to an end of themselves and they've seen what is inside of themselves and they've said, how could someone like that love someone like this? Um, see, all of us are at different uh, kind of stages of faith and life and, and I never make assumptions when preaching, um, but I want to be very clear this morning about how you can know that there is a God like that who loves someone like you. Um, and how do, how do I get into a relationship with that God like this? Now, is it, is it a series of steps to follow? You know, is it like a slated list of rules that I have to keep? Is it a certain amount of activity that I've got to keep up for a certain amount of time? Um, let me be very clear about this. A saving relationship with God comes solely by trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Solely. Um, we, we would use the terminology of faith. That, that is, faith is transferring your trust from your own goodness to transferring the trust of the goodness of someone else on your behalf. Um, you see... All of us have been around Christianity to various levels, and we hear things like, Jesus is your redeemer, or salvation is in Jesus. And, and if you don't understand the backstory that Exodus is filling in for us, that really holds no weight for you. I mean, it's almost like, to, closing metaphor here, it's almost like if I were to tell you about these two little hobbit creatures 
that were taking a gold ring up a mountain. They're clawing their way up. You just see this final scene. They're clawing their way up to throw this gold into to, to volcanic fire. And I say, this is where they saved the world. This is everything. If you haven't seen or experienced or felt that backstory, that really means nothing to you. It's two hobbits throwing a ring in a hole. If you know the backstory of Lord of the Rings, and you know the journey that they've been on, it means everything to you. See, how does salvation come? It comes by seeing your own inner desperate scenario and turning away from that and trusting and crying out for help. This is what it means to be a believer today. Have you encountered this God? Like the God of the Exodus. The God who came to move heaven and earth to free and liberate his people from religiosity, from rules and ordination things and placements that we put on ourselves. I mean, who is the God you've encountered is the question I want to leave you lingering with today. Is it is it just a religious guru who's helped you to be a better person? Is it a, a life insurance agency who's protecting a policy for the afterlife in case there should be such a thing? Is it just some good friend you call on in moments of need? Or is it the personal, powerful, compassionate, steadfast, loving, and redeeming God of the Exodus? Oh, I pray that you would meet him, even even today, for the first time. Let's pray together. Father, I see myself all over these narratives. Lord, I, I am someone who wants to work for salvation. Lord, I, I want to impress you. Um, I want to do good things so that other people are impressed by me. Um, but Lord, I thank you for revealing yourself to us in the scriptures as a God who would get all the glory. That salvation would come by a radical and free grace that's given to, to us by faith in your son, Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would leave this place enamored, utterly enamored and amazed by the work that Christ did for us. How he heard us, remembered us, saw us, and knew us by becoming like us. Lord, help us to to be changed by that. We pray these things in his name. Amen.